welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yordana Osband, our daf of the day, Masachat Sota, daf Lamed Bet, page 32. 32 begins chapter 7, and in chapter 7 we have, just as a basic intro, um, the we have a bunch of halachot that are kind of, kind of connected to Sota, kind of connected to the halachot of Sota. It's really more distant than anything we've seen. I'm not talking about the occasional tangent. But the but this is the premise is already moving further afield, um, which should not surprise us. I guess we're on page thirty-two out of forty-nine. Um, we have a good amount of material to do in the areas that are, as I say, a little bit further removed from the actual Sota case. So, and you'll hear it right away. Meaning the the Mishnah opens with these are the things that can be recited in any language. Meaning it doesn't have to specifically be Hebrew, and so you can see where this is going to go, where it's going to connect to Sota, but you can also see where it's going to be far afield. Parashat Sota, there you go, meaning the portion of the warning and the oath and the everything that the Kohen says to the to the Sota woman, right? All of this can be done in any language. Vidui Maser, the recitation of or declaration of of tithing, right? Taking a tenth from your produce. Kriyat Shema Utzfilah, Reciting Kriyat Shema, reciting Shema and and the Tfilat Amida, um, the prayer of the silent benedictions, whatever. And those are things that we discussed long ago in Masachah Prachot. But they're the kind of thing where you might feel like, well, this has to be in Hebrew. And the answer is even Shema does not have to be in Hebrew. Uvir Katamar, zone, benching, grace after meals. Ushvuat Eidut, the oath that witnesses take, that they are eligible to be with, that what they're going to say is in fact true. And an oath on uh, collateral, right? When you make a deposit to say that you don't have another person's deposit, right? Or that the, right, there's a, I am dealing with this in an honest way kind of oath. Okay. And then, as should not surprise any of us, and these are the things that have to be said in Hebrew, the holy tongue. Mikra Bikurim. The recitation of Bikurim, the first fruits recitation, which is an interesting contrast to the tithing, that it does have to be said in um, in Hebrew. The chalitza, the statement that the the woman who's going to not go through with Yibum, what she has to say, klalot, um, the blessings. Now this is a strange one. The blessings and the curses that were spoken on Har Grizim, Mount Grizim, and Mount Eval. The reason I say it's strange is because this is an event that took place in the Torah. Right, meaning it's there in Sefer Dvarim. So yes, they had to be said in Hebrew, but also weren't they said in Hebrew? Meaning we're not doing this again as compared to Bikurim or Chalitza, which is something that you can imagine happening again. Certainly Chalitza happens even in nowadays and Bikurim in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. Birka Kohanim, right? The blessing of the priest that's, that is, you know, done in, uh, it is done in Shul in a regular way. But even if you're talking about it more specifically in the Beit HaMikdash, the idea is that it needs to be done in Hebrew. Virkat Kohen Gadol, the high priest in that is in the Beit Hamikdash, Ufarshata Melech, the portion that the king would read um, at the on Sukkot at the end of Shemitah. That's what we nowadays refer to as Hakel. I guess they always refer to it as Hakel. And the king stands up and makes this recitation that needs to be done in Hebrew. Ufarshat Egla Rufa, the if they would um, the. Right, if we have a person who's killed in a no man's land zone between two cities and they don't know who did the who committed the murder and the cities need to kind of stand up and say, you know, 
you know, this was not us or whatever, right? This whole, this whole story of then they break the, the neck of a calf and they recite this piece it has to be in Hebrew. And likewise, the Kohen who's anointed for war when he stands up to address the nation before he goes out to war. So he's again going to make this announcement in Hebrew. Um, now, now the Mishnah, again, a very long Mishnah, is going to get into some of these cases. How is it that we know that the Bikurim statement has to be recited in Hebrew? Because we've got a verse from Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. So there's a statement in Devarim that says, you will speak and say this before the Lord your God. That's in Devarim 26. And then later in Devarim 27, it says, the Levian, the Levites will speak and say, So the Gemara says, the same way that the, um, the Mishnah, that the second statement needs to be in Hebrew, so too the first statement needs to be in Hebrew. Okay, well, that's interesting because how do we even know that the, Le- the Levites have to be speaking in Hebrew? But fine, right? I mean, the parallel we understand. Chalitza Ketzad. How do we know that Chalitza has the ceremony has to be in Hebrew? And it, use, it uses the same proof text, um, right? The Chalitza case is in Devarim twenty-five, and then it again cites this Devarim twenty-seven that the Levites will speak and say, and they are speaking in Hebrew. So too, the recitation that she needs to speak and say will also be in Hebrew. Rabbi Huda Omer Amra Kacha. So Rabbi Huda says that you could learn in a different way. You could say the very fact that she says, and she's about Chalita, that she shall speak and say thus, right? And the thus means it sounds like it has to be thus these exact words which follow in the verse. So therefore, that would be the exact verse, which is in Hebrew. Okay, what about that ceremony of the blessings and the curses on those mountains? So it goes through the whole description. The Jewish people that cross the Jordan River, they come to these mountains, Grizim and Eval, they're in Samaria, they're near, or kind of near the city of Shechem, near uh, um, Elono. Elone More, which nowadays is a, there's a town called Elone More as well. But right, these are these are biblical um, landmarks. So the the mission here says, you know, that aren't those aren't those places on the other side of the Jordan? And the verse that that's a citation from goes on to say, you know, beyond the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanim. Um, by Gilgal, by again, by Elone Elo More. Um, the, the entirety of the verse is not brought a second time. So we've got a verse in Bereshit, in Genesis, talking about Avram going through that area till the area of Shechem, till Elon More. Ma Elon More ha more lahalan Shechem, af Elon More ha more kan Shechem. The same way that those are the places discussed there, there, that's what's discussed here as well. Okay, meaning, right, meaning this is a little bit still of a challenge to say, why do we know that, how do we know that it has to be in Hebrew? I would say that the real discussion here is talking about specifically the location of where these blessings and curses took place. And fundamentally, they're in that area near Shkut. Okay, then the Mishnah goes on. 
שישה שבטים עלו לראש הר גריזים, ושישה שבטים עלו לראש הר עיבל. שישה שבטים עלו לראש הר עיבל. מהגריזים and six to Harival, והכהנים והלווים והארון עומדים למטה באמצע. So you've got the priest and the Levites and the Aaron, the, the ark, they're all down in the middle between these two groups that are up on the mountains. והכהנים מקיפים את הארון והלווים את הכהנים וכל ישראל מכאן ומכאן. So you've got the כהנים standing around the ark and the לווים standing around the כהנים, and then they're flanked on either side. by these groups of the different Shvatim, the different tribes. And the verse in Yehoshua, because again, this is, it goes into the book of Joshua, obviously, because that's, that's exactly where they're going to be there, right? So as it says, all of Israel is going to be there with their elders and their officers and the judges, and they're going to be on this side of the ark and on that side, the Kohanim, the Levim, and so on. It's really interesting that all of this narrative is not just textual explication, which is already unusual, but the presentation here is, you know, obviously quite long. It's interesting that they put this in the Mishnah. So the Levites turned to Hargrizim and they opened with a blessing. And here we've got the blessing, you know, from, from Sefer Devarim. 27, Blessed is the person who does not make a graven or molten image. Everybody says, So they turn to and they open with a curse. Namely, And likewise, the person is going to be cursed who does make a graven or molten image, meaning they're parallel. Blessed is the one who does not do it in this case. And curse is the one who does. They all say, Amen. Fine, this is how they go through all of the brachot kolot that are there in Sefer Tzvarim. They build the stones and they they bring the stones and they build a mizbeach, an altar. And they plaster it. And they write there the, all the words of the Torah. I'm not sure exactly how to inter- interpret that, meaning the Mepharshim here do talk about that. What does it mean, all of the words of the Torah? And they write it in 70 languages. Um, that it should be clear, you know, very clear for anybody to understand what these words are. And then they, um, they take the stones from there. Um, and then they go to Gilgal, which is where they had been staying, and they sleep there in their lodging place. And I, I find it to be remarkable that this is the Mishnah. Besides the length of it, the, the fact that the Mishnah bothers with something that is this lengthy is interesting to begin with, but also the fact that it is like so spelled out here makes me wonder, like, you know, we know that the Mishnah was compiled to prevent things from being forgotten. And I'm wondering if some of these details, like they included them in the mission because they didn't have somewhere else to put them to make sure that people would remember that this is exactly how it happened. That's an interesting idea. Like almost they needed certain parts of, you know, look, it has to do with how part of the Torah was actually recited or something that's recorded in the Torah. So oral tradition, right? There was some Torah Shabbat Alpah around it. that then the Mishnah says that actually needs to be recorded in writing so people really understand how this was actually done. I, I like that idea. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to move on now to the Gemara. And the Gemara gets into a discussion uh, where they makes a distinction between 
um, uh, well, well, it talks about there's a difference between Amira and Ania and Amira. In other words, there's a difference between a mitzvah where you just have to say it, you just need to say something, versus you need to do Ania and Amira. You need to do speaking and saying, okay? And then it quotes the, the following Brisa, which is going to explain what the significance is of having something where you just say something versus speaking and saying. Tanya, we learned at a Brisa. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai Omer, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says, Adam Omer shivcho bekol namuach, ugnuto bekol ram. A person should say his own praise in a soft, quiet voice and his and something that for his genud, for his discredit, right in a loud voice. Now, obviously, this is counterintuitive because you would think what's genut, you know, you should say uh, quietly and what's shevach, you should say out loud. So obviously, the Gemara is going to come uh, and try to, um, you know, try to explain this. Um, and it says the following, So first of all, it explains to us where do we get the distinction of this? And this has to do with uh, you know, how the description of Maser is given, right? Where it says that basically uh, it should be uh, speaking and saying uh, and, uh, you know, sorry, just speaking. And that's why we say it quietly. Whereas the Gnut, right, the discredit uh, is said loudly. And we get that from Bikurim because the Pasuk says that you have to speak and say. That's from Devarim chapter 26, verse Five. So again, this has to do with the machlokas that was previously, which I didn't read, which is making a distinction between Amira um, and uh, Aniyah and Amira, right? A mitzvah where you just have that you have to say something versus speaking and saying. So just having speaking means, which is like with uh, the, which is like the vidui um, of Maser, right? When you declare that you're giving Maser of something, you just have to say it. And that means you say it quietly. Um, but that's a good thing, right? You're fulfilling a mitzvah. Whereas with Bikurim, you have to say it loudly because it has that double description. Um, and why is it Gnut? Because that's the paragraph we say of Arami Obed Avi. Um, we actually say it in the Haggadah, uh, where we sort of, we it gives us the what was declared when you brought Bikurim, when you brought the first fruits, is you had to say a whole paragraph, basically summaring up Jewish history, starting from Lavan uh, all the way through Yitziat Mitzrayim. I think it's also interesting uh, you know, that when we talk about the Pesach Seder, we also have this description, right, that we start with Gnud and we end with Shevach, right, that we start with the Gnud that we uh, were worshipped idols, that our forefathers worshipped idols, and the Shevach that, you know, we dedicated ourselves to Hashem. Um, but again, this, what we're talking about here is what type of voice do you need to say these things in? So the Shevach is quiet and the Gnut is loud, which again seems counterintuitive, but we learn it from these two, from the vidui of these two different mitzvot. Um, and uh, so the Gemara is going to ask this, Gunatoba Kolram, right? Why would you say something that's embarrassing, that's discrediting to a person? Why would you say it loudly? And they're going to bring a proof that maybe you shouldn't from other things in in, in other halachot. Va'ama Rabbi Yochanan Mishum Rabbi Shimon Bar didn't Rabbi Yochanan say in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, right, who is the uh, author of this brace that we first just quoted, why is it that the Shemona Esrei, right, the Amida prayer is said quietly in a whisper, not to embarrass those who uh, who have done a sin. In other words, somebody may want to confess their sins during the prayer, and so therefore we say it quietly so they're not embarrassed. 
And the proof for this, right, that someone who sinned shouldn't be embarrassed, is that in the Beit HaMikdash, right, when animals were slaughtered for korbanot, the sin offering and the burnt offering were slaughtered in the same place. In other words, we didn't distinguish, right, uh, you know, uh, where those things were slaughtered. They were slaughtered basically in the same place so that people wouldn't be able to recognize, oh, you brought a chatat, you were bringing a sin offering because it was slaughtered over there. Um, and therefore we know that you sinned. So we just slaughtered everything in the same place so nobody knew. And But it's also a way of showing there's nothing to be uh, embarrassed about, but we did it sort of in a very quiet way. Um, and so then the Gemara says, no, we're not talking about, so based on that proof, maybe you should say Ganut quietly. So the Gemara then is going to modify what this was saying. La tema Ganuto, right? Don't say that it's Ganut, that you write something that's discrediting to a person that you shouldn't say in a loud voice. Ella emat sa'aro. Rather, you should say that somebody should speak loudly about his pain. Kititanya. And now they bring another brisa, right? And they're quoting here a pasuk, v'tamei tamei So this is a pasuk from Vayikra, chapter 13, verse 45, which is describing that the somebody who's a mitzora, somebody with, you know, our poor translation of leprosy, has to publicize uh, that they are ritually impure. They have to say it out loud. And so they learn from this pasuk, a person has to announce his pain to the masses. And then the masses will pay for mercy on his behalf. And similarly, right, the same, anyone who something painful happens to announces it to the masses and the masses, the public, the people, will pray to have mercies on his behalf. I, I was just amazed by this Gemara. I mean, I thought it was just simply beautiful, right? Think very often when people go through painful things, we tend to hide them or we have shame over them. Um, and uh, this Gemara is basically saying it's important to share those things because people will pray for you to have, you know, for Rachamim, for somehow for this situ- situation to change for you. Um, and I think it's really giving us something very powerful that people should not go through things. Sa'ar, I mean, notice how they change it. They also are saying like, when we go through those things that are hard in life, they're not ganut. They're not, they shouldn't be shameful to us, okay? But rather we should view them as sa'ar. We should view them as something painful, something, there might be something painful about our past, something painful that we're currently going through. And the key here is, is that we say it loudly, we declare it loudly, so that other people can help us go through that. Um, and notice, like, God, yes, obviously God is in here, right? Because we're praying for Rachamim. But the point is the relationship that we have with other people uh, when we're going through something that is sour. And I just, I don't know, I was really struck by this passage, and I thought it was just simply a very, very beautiful uh, piece of Gemara. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.